Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. Welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies audio blog. I'm your reader, Sarah Head. Each episode of the audio blog coincides with the blog post on the Archaeological Fantasies website, where notes and resources will be listed. We hope you enjoy these short mini-episodes and check the blog out for more information. Now, get ready to think critically. Hey everyone! Today we are starting a new section on the blog, namely a more academic look at what pseudo-archaeology is, its history, and why it's so damn successful at getting its message out there and sticking around. I've covered a lot of little bits and pieces of this on the blog before, but I've never really done a deep dive into the topic, breaking things down for you. I figured it's probably time we look at the timeline of pseudo-archaeology and see how it's developed from its somewhat religious roots to the full-blown mega-phenomena it is today. Maybe by examining it this way and understanding where archaeology missed opportunities to address it professionally, we can better understand what it's going to take to correct the misinformation of the modern movement. There's going to be a few parts to this series, and you may have already noticed the pseudo-archaeology timeline in the blog menu. I'll be updating that as I find reliable dates for things. Also, there's now a section for terms and concepts. I'll be putting brief discussions there to link to when we talk about things like what's mythic time and who was Ignatius Donnelly. Hopefully that will make it easier to find important topics later. Lastly, I've added a reading list full of books I've read and suggestions from my co-hosts and special guests on the show. I'll still have resources and citations inside the blog posts as usual, because citing sources not only proves I've done the work, but that I'm not making things up. All that laid out, this section will be an ongoing work probably done in phases and definitely updated as I get new resources. When I started this project, I had a respectable collection of books and articles I was able to read and discovered through them a larger number of things I didn't have time to read or even access to. As that changes and I get access to things, I will be updating the blog to reflect it, like any good researcher should. That all said, let's get going. Episode 1 the beginning of pseudo-archaeology. The first thing to look at anytime you start a new project is the history of the topic. Our topic is practically as old as the field of archaeology itself. Some might argue even older. The reason for this is that before the field of archaeology professionalized, there was a time of antiquarians. This time of antiquarianism is very much like what Jeb Card calls mythic science time, a time before names and before organization. It's not as mystical as it all sounds, but that area of fuzzy memory where the mists of time are a little harder to see through, that's where trouble starts. We don't need to walk through the history of the field of archaeology or drown ourselves in theory, thank God. A few highlighted moments will do us just nicely. What we want to understand is that the way archaeologists interact with pseudo-archaeology and the public today is very different from the way early antiquarians and archaeologists did. The field itself used to be much more open and communicated with the public better. True, the field was far less professional and had issues that the modern professional field is still learning to detach from. I don't want people to think I'm trying to ignore this. Archaeology has issues, but it's the worst of these issues that pseudo-archaeology tries so damn hard to hold on to. Slight disclaimer here. We'll be focusing mostly on North American archaeology and pseudo-archaeology. We may make a jump outside of these borders occasionally, but mostly we'll stay here. 
The main reason for this is most of today's popular archaeology seems to come back to the Americas at some point. And secondly, it's the area of archaeology that I am most familiar with and can speak to with the most authority. So with that, let's look at what I consider the first real clash of archaeology versus pseudo-archaeology. When settlers and explorers first came to the Americas, they noticed the monumental structures that dotted the continent. However, Europeans at the time couldn't understand how people as primitive as the natives could have created anything as impressive as the great earth mounds in North America, or the stunning temples in South America. And so, lacking either the knowledge or the belief in the humanity of Native Americans, the Europeans decided that there must have been another race of people here before the natives, one that was advanced and clever and probably white like themselves. Having no evidence of any kind to point to who these advanced peoples were, early antiquarians fell back on myths, folklore, Bible stories, and mythic documents like the Icelandic sagas to help them figure out who it was that settled the Americas first. The most popular candidate for first were the Lost Tribes of Israel, the Phoenicians, and the Norse. The Celts and random British figures also factored in, but the top three were, and still are today, the first grouping. There are lots of reasons for these different groups, spanning political, religious, and just plain racist ideals. But the important thing to take away at this point is, none of this was pseudo-archaeology. Yet. Even those who are usually put forward as early champions of a native-first theory were not as noble as we are led to believe. This whitewashing of archaeological history feeds into Jeb Card's argument of mythic scientific time. Card defines mythic time in his book Spooky Archaeology as the time before names and a time before human society. He further applies this idea to mythic science time, a time before professional organization and scientific accountability, a time when the field of archaeology was just starting to develop and solidify into what we like to recognize as professional archaeology today. The case of the mound builder myth encapsulates this, not only as an example of how archaeology was developed at the time, but also as an example of something the fringe likes to hold on to even today. The mound builder myth. Henry Rowe Schoolcraft wasn't at all sure who built the mounds, but he was pretty sure it wasn't the natives. Schoolcraft suggested everyone from Phoenicians, Celts, and the Vikings. Yet at the same time, Schoolcraft expressed hearty skepticism about the interpretations of rock drawings as Phoenician script, or misreadings of Indian petroglyphs as Viking runestones. The reason for this was his close connections with the Ojibwa tribe and his exposure to their writing. He famously brought in an Ojibwa elder to do the only known reading of the Dighton Rock inscription by a native speaker. Though there are issues with this reading due to the region the elder was from, it's probably closer than any other reading of Dighton Rock. The discussion on who built the mounds was one taken quite seriously by early Euro-Americans. Timothy Dwight, in the first of his four-volume Travels in New England and New York, published in 1821-1823, through 1823, said, quote, Nor is there a single known fact which forbids us to believe that the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians, in their voyages to different countries on the Atlantic, wandered to the Western continent. Annette Kolodny remarks on this suggesting that Dwight, like many of those who would become the United States' founding fathers, was trying to create a historical narrative for the newly forming nation. Creating a new narrative gave the new nation meaning, and thereby created identity for the Euro-Americans who were about to wage war with the Britain monarchy. This identity was important to the newly forming country because it gave them legitimacy to belong in the new world. This creation and assumption of identity is a theme we'll see play out in other areas of pseudo-archaeology. But again, at this point, we are still not talking about pseudo-archaeology. 
Letters exchanged between Samuel Mather and Benjamin Franklin discuss who the original founders of America might be. Old Ben even sends along a handwritten account from a Swedish gentleman he'd met who told him the Norse were the first inhabitants. This was a popular idea at the time, leaving poor Christopher Columbus as a historical footnote. He wouldn't come again until sometime after the Revolutionary War, and only then as a way of establishing a national identity to legitimize European occupation of the New World. Nationalism is a repeating theme in pseudo-archaeology, and still, we are not yet talking about pseudo-archaeology. But I think the setup for it is apparent. The nail in the mound builder myth would come from Cyrus Thomas, after being commissioned by the newly created Smithsonian Institution. Thomas originally thought the mounds were the remnants of a more advanced race of humans that were now gone. However, through archaeology and, oddly, the Bat Creek Stone, Thomas was convinced the mounds were connected to the ancestors of Native Americans, specifically the Cherokee, because of the Bat Creek Stone inscription looking like Cherokee writing. With Thomas's proclamation finally giving credit where credit's due, interest in the mounds waned. But this was the beginning of what Card calls the initial engagement between the newly forming and professionalizing field of archaeology and its doppelganger, pseudo-archaeology. I do have to agree with Fagan that just because a theory or idea existed in the past doesn't automatically make it pseudoscience. Archaeology started off on some very wrong footing, but where the line begins to be drawn is with evidence and the adherence to the scientific method. Thomas found no evidence for the mound builders to be anything other than the ancestors of the Native Americans, despite already assuming them to be non-Native in origin. This is good science. Pseudoscience is insisting that the mounds must have been built by another group of people, despite overwhelming evidence that they were not and also pushing that insistence on the public by using misleading or false information. Age doesn't make pseudoscience. Blindly ignoring evidence does. So to recap where we are now. 1. The history and formation of pseudoarchaeology runs alongside that of professional archaeology. They share roots in the same past. 2. Because the origin of archaeology is so far back in the past, it exists in mythic science time. This is seen with the mound builder myth and how it was settled by Thomas during the early formation of the field. 3. Just because a theory is both old and wrong doesn't automatically make it pseudoscience. Adherence to the theory, despite evidence to the contrary, does. Next episode, we're going to talk about how things changed as archaeology developed. From the early engagement of pre-professional archaeology into the development of institutional professional archaeology, then the re-engagement of professional archaeology with the public, and modern-day archaeology's interaction with pseudo-archaeology. We hope you enjoyed the Archaeological Fantasies audio blog. Be sure to like and share us with all of your friends, enemies, and acquaintances. Be sure to check out the blog at archiefantasies.com for more information and to comment on the episode. Or you can send us an email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. If you'd like to donate to the blog, you can find us on Patreon and Ko-fi. This episode was edited by Sarah Head, and music was provided by Archeosu Productions. Thanks for listening! Don't, don't dinosaurs! See? Are you happy? Do you get it now? Do you get it? Honestly.